some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of trumpet dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb. Rex, what's up, man? I'm much man. Great to reconnect with you. It's good to see you. Yeah. And um, Likewise. We, we spoke on a, on a podcast six years ago. It was in your home. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember this. Six years ago? I, I, uh, I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina at the time. My life was very different then than it is now. And I remember I, I was listening to our interview because I wanted to know, remember what I what we talked about yeah. before we talked today. And we were bashing my home state of Minnesota. <laughs> we, were like, we were? It's so cold. Oh. Never go there. It's miserable. <laughs> I'll never go there again. And no. guess what? You'll never believe this. I just moved back to Minnesota. <laughs> really? <laughs> so we're here when, did, when did you move then? Just, just a couple of weeks ago. No kidding. So I moved last week and then I came back for this event. We're here at the uh, Virginia Music Educators Association. Rex is playing at a concert. And I was playing with the um, band called the Virginia Wind Symphony based in Norfolk. And so I came back for that and let them take care of some business back in Norfolk. Yeah. But um, what, where, what part of Minnesota? Twin Cities, which is great because I, I grew up there and I didn't appreciate what's there. I love it there, man. Really, the only thing that's a drag is the uh, winters. You get some hardcore winters there, but the people, the music, the scene, I've always but, saw Yeah, it. but the, the, the hardship breeds loyalty. <laughs> and, and, that's why, and that's why you get a place like Norfolk where I, where I lived for five years it's so transient because it's military yeah. people are in and out right. it might be the same here in Richmond but Minnesota if you're there you're committed to it you're, you have a reason to be there to suffer through that winter yeah. so there, I think there's something that, to be said something that could be man makes sense yeah. <laughs> a lot of people don't know may hear the name Rex Richardson and think trumpet virtuoso international quote superstar that's what the yeah, right. that's what the people that trying to sell tickets they make up words like that right a lot of people don't know that he actually started in anthropology that was his major in college that, that was right? my that was my major yeah. he started yeah. in trumpet and then he switched to anthropology yeah. i went to northwestern as a music major but started my sophomore year i ended up dropping out of the music school and finishing an anthropology degree. Yeah. yeah but now you're like an anthropologist you're going all over the world <laughs> studying yeah. different peoples and you're right. sharing the gospel of trumpet yeah i suppose that yeah, I don't. I suppose I don't do much directly with anthropology, but that was useful in the sense that it was helped shape your worldview and made it maybe in some ways less confusing to be exposed to so many different folks from different walks of life and different experiences. And that's really one of the best things about traveling, of course, is just getting to meet people. And lots of times they think differently than I do. And it's that's learning to 
to see that in a positive light is is really helpful and anthropology as a study certainly help with that i think we could probably all deal with a big dose of that well, what, in, what in our country right now you're majoring in anthropology you study you can look at different branches like archaeology oh, yeah. is, is a sub okay. discipline of anthropology so is cultural anthropology which is what a lot of people think of when, when they think of studying an indigenous culture hanging out in some remote part of the world maybe but but in, in a lot of ways there's a lot of overlap with cultural anthropology and sociology because cultural anthropologists might study something happening in their own neighborhood so it's not necessarily about some sort of exotic setting. And then there's biological anthropology, which I think has a lot of overlap now with evolutionary biology. And so that's where you get a little more about the harder sort of science of it. Uh, those are the three main disciplines. Of course, there's overlap for us with ethnomusicology. So okay. there's a whole field of ethnomusicology where anthropology meets musicology. I now, just interviewed so. uh, Paul Markello. Really? He premiered, he did the Canadian premiere of Wynton Marsalis' new yeah. trumpet concerto. Yeah. And he said the uh, ethnomusicology, that, that, that I just thought that word made me think of that. Because yeah. that concerto, from what I haven't heard it, but from what I understand, it's very ethnic in its roots. Yeah, I've only heard fragments of it from Paul's <clears throat> and Mike Sachs' performances. And Instagram. It sounds really cool. Yeah. Uh, and I can't wait to hear the whole thing. And uh, yeah, it was really happy for Paul that he got to do that very well deserved he's just a great player and a great guy he's been a, he's been a friend for a long time now my very first gig with Rhythm of Brass was basically like his last gig I think with the Rochester Philharmonic we were both really? 26 years old yeah and we were solos of Rochester Phil he had just won the job in Montreal and was wrapping up there and we just hit it off as fast friends first time we played together so that's 20-something years. Yeah, 27 years ago. 27, yeah, that's right. No, 95, 20. Going on 30 years. Yeah, coming up on 29, 30 years. Wow. Yeah, long time. You'll have to forgive my ignorance. What is Rhythm and Brass? Oh, Rhythm and Brass is a group that I've been touring with since then, since 95. I started touring with them in April of 95. And it's a Whiff Ride. You probably know yeah. Whiff. Whiff's was a founding member of that group. And also... Charles Villarubia, who's now with a tuba prophet in UT Austin. <coughs> and, <coughs> excuse me, Tom Brantley, who is trombone professor at the University of South Florida, is he joined a couple months after I did. So we, both, we both started a couple years after the group was founded. And, uh, yeah, Alex Shuhan, who teaches horn at Ithaca College, played horn and piano in the group. And I think that's, I think that's everyone, yeah. Yeah, we played for the first time in about seven and a half years just this past September. We had never really officially disbanded, but people were getting too busy with their own yeah. stuff yeah, and, it. and it just winded down. But we're like, hey, it's your 30th anniversary of the founding of the group. Two years before you were on your way. Time. You were on your way to a re reunion Yeah, from the last time we spoke. Yeah, that sounds right. Because I, I was listening to it. You were on your way to a re oh, reunion. Oh, got it. So yeah. It must have been that. That was it, yeah, because in August we got together for a few days of rehearse in Texas, like at, at Waco, like Wiff teaches at Baylor, we were able to use Baylor as a rehearsal space. And then we had concerts, we had residencies at Baylor and UT Austin for a week in, in September. Yeah, it was great to play with them. So what kind of music do they play? 
Man, it's, it's, it's almost anything we can possibly sink our teeth into. Essentially, There's, there was a principle in the group to say, let's just play music we like and try to help audiences enjoy what we like and try to present it in that fashion. That the only sort of restriction on genre is, wouldn't mean about genre specifically, but anything we try to play that just didn't seem to work, ah, this or, this chart doesn't work, this arrangement, whatever, then we we might revise it, we might discard sure. it. But if it sounded good, we well, what, play what, it. What pieces did you think would never work but actually worked? We've we've pieces got pieces or genres. The the most surprising one is something that became almost. Uh, almost a, a kind of a signature piece for the group. It's something called Temporary Heartbeat. And this is where Dave Gluck, who's the percussionist in the group, but he's a, there's a guy who's a musical center of the group, it's Dave, because he's the most active composer and arranger. And he did this thing combining The Wizard of Oz and, and um, Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Musical elements of both and even dialogue snippets from Wild at Heart, the Nick Cage, the uh, David Lynch film that has a bunch of Wizard of Oz references. And it's this sort of big 20 minute plus sort of a chunk of our program that we would often end the concert with. It's very physically demanding and and just crazy. And I was like, this is, there's no way people are gonna get this. And people have loved it. Even when we played for older audiences where they might not have been as tuned into that music, they, they've they gotten it. Yeah, that's been the most surprising thing. And we've all done, a lot of us have contributed to like originals. Alex and Dave and I are probably the most active composers in the group, I think. And, but everyone's brought in charts, arrangements, and anything we can. I've brought in Wayne Shorter tunes, and Dave brought in a Kraftwerk. Tune. Do you know, remember those guys? No. The band called Kraftwerk. This, there were this German kind of new wave, crazy bands from the 80s that uh, they have cult following to this day, I would say, but that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a cool idea. I think I, I think he was combining it with Eric Satie or something. It was like a bizarre mashup. Cool idea, it didn't work, but hey, credit for the cool ideas. You talk about how... The Older folks, and you'd never, you'd, you'd think that they want like Gershwin or uh, Glenn Miller, but you think that's what they're going to respond to. They're, they'll never get this. But I think my experience is that what they what they really resonate with is they see the passion of the performers. They yeah, see the performers right. into it, and, they're, and, and if they can sell it, then people identify with that. Even if they don't get the music, yeah. they understand that these guys. And they also know, they also know real virtuosic music. Yeah, performances. Yeah, I think they appreciate when someone is committed to mastery of their yeah, instrument. In exactly. this. But it's also there can be a little bit of showing off for showing off sake. But ultimately, they want to have a, a, a soulful experience like yeah. the rest of us. I interviewed Chris Bodie recently. Really? And I got to see him his performance afterwards. And yeah. sold out audience, 2,500, whatever it is in the audience. They're all musical. They're not musical. Uh, they're not musicians like I am. So I know what Chris is doing. He's a great player. He's a wonderful player. Yeah. And I can appreciate what he's doing playing a double G on that old beat up Martin Committee that he's got. <laughs> yeah. 
but these other people, they don't know what he's going through. But they, I, I think, deep down, they know this guy is good. Yeah. I can't put my finger on it, but this guy is really good. There's something, it is an interesting thing to think about. What is the connection ultimately between folks who are not musicians and the range of expression that they will connect with? Because we, it's a little hard for us to step out of our musician vibe and think of that because all of us who are adults, we've been doing it for so long. But I think of it this way though, was I remember being a kid and hearing things that really moved me or made me feel excited. And, and I've always felt my job as a performer is to, to do that for other people, you know? So I've always tried to hang on to that, that those experiences, going to see Morris Andre live. I got to do that once when I was 16, he played with the Nassau Symphony and that was still one of my most vivid musical memories. Okay. You know, just, he was in Nashville, you said? Uh, the, with the National Symphony. Oh, National in, in Symphony. In D.C., okay. yeah. Because I, I grew up, uh, I went right. to high school anyway, the Northern Virginia area. So. Yeah. But those things, I always felt like I want to have that image of what what is happening in the room that's going to make someone go, oh, man, that was beautiful. That was exciting or whatever, whatever the experience is. Yeah. I think all of us as musicians, we do that on some level. And if we think of it that way, it may be easier to connect with some of the the more visceral experiences that now I'm assisting to. For someone like Chris Bodie, who has just a beautiful vocal tone, yes. for starters, people are going to hear the beauty of the sound and respond to that. And he'll create excitement in the high register as well as lyricism in the middle. And, and those are things I think we people broadly will respond to very well. Yeah. You know? I don't know if you've ever heard it put it put this way, but you hear you hear the word virtuoso, and I hear the word virtuous. Yeah, there's there's a certain virtue that goes into playing at that level, and it's not the notes that speak to people, but it's through the notes that you can understand this person has really disciplined themselves. Yeah, I said I, I like, and they can't put their finger on it; they can't articulate it. Like I'm trying to very poorly but they know that they can see commitment and dedication through those notes there's something that ends up being i think the word transcendent comes to mind Ooh, it's okay. like when you walk into a cathedral in europe yes and you're like yeah yeah overwhelmed by the beauty of the sights or the sense of space or when you see like one of dali's masterworks i used to get to go down to the dali museum in st petersburg on occasion and just that it's just stunning and part of what you're seeing is this the mastery of a medium and there's something about that moves us as human beings i think on a very visceral level and it's the same with music and it's not easy to put our finger on people respond to all kinds of things um, and you get when you're talking about crossing genres a lot of it ends up being what people are exposed to. like a lot of classical musicians don't understand say rap or hip-hop culture at all but for the people who live in that culture who consume the music and for whom it makes sense it's just probably as powerful as anything and that's part of that's one of the things i think that's interesting for us as musicians is the the kind of spaces that the music operates in and how we we can connect to that but and because you can't really predict how people think or how they feel or anything like that. All you can do is 
To, and, and, and it's not even about us emoting as we play, right? I think it was Winton who pointed this out, this idea that our job is not to emote, it's to ex- express. Um, Sorry, who's Winton said that? Yeah. Okay. It's not to emote, it's to express. Yeah, That's and this was very early on, I think, on one of the, his record liner notes, because I used to read those religiously when I was a kid. And his first recordings were coming out when I was about 13, so I was going crazy over those. And, and I think it's a great point where if I can just do a primal scream and have my own experience and people might feel empathy but there's nothing not necessarily anything beautiful being expressed there where what I'd like to do is play something that evokes uh, the most maybe not a primal scream hopefully <laughs> but to play in such a way that will evoke an emotion and listen even if my mind is totally quiet I feel like I play best that way where I'm really focused on the sound. The times I've been most emotionally disrupted have been like playing for my uncle's funerals, playing Amazing Grace or something, and not my best playing. Didn't necessarily matter because of what the situation was, but uh, because I'm all emotionally wrapped up in it, I don't have control over the expression. So that's where it's sometimes counterintuitive, where I think musicians are often at the best, where our mind is quiet, but we're really just connected to the sound that is we're trying to make, so that the listener, on the other hand, can receive it and really have the experience, have the emotional reaction to it. All right. Well, speaking of notes, yeah. you're, you've been known to pump out a high frequency of notes in a very short <laughs> amount of time. Always by accident. So that- <laughs> Most of them are by design. Then <laughs> every now and then, something unintentional slips. More slip, often than you might think. More often than you might think. Yeah, frequently. So today you're playing something that was was written for you by Alan Bizzuto. Yes, it was a okay. commission back in 2000, 2015 is when we we got the funding uh, from BCU. I got President's Quest Fund grant. And it allowed me to, it was, it was amazing. It was the first time to be given to a non, to a purely artistic endeavor and allowed me to fund concertos composed by Alan, by Tony Plogue, uh, by David Sampson, who's, done, who's, who's a Virginia native and has done a lot of great stuff for America, Brasco and Ted and Chris Gecker, those great musicians. And also Andy Scott, who's a British composer, best known like him in brass band circles. So those four concertos were commissioned, so Alan's was one of them, of course, and he wrote it. It's funny because when I when I first saw it, I was like, he wrote it for himself, knowing he could probably play it instantly and that I would probably eventually figure it out after months of shedding. And that's, <laughs> that's how it went. It's impressive, and I've heard you play it once and um, about to hear you again in an hour and a half or so. But yeah. I was trying to think about how I'm gonna ask this question because when you're up there, you're playing all these notes, you know that a bunch of people are out there, wow, that's impressive, that's amazing. I hope they're having some kind of positive reaction to it. You never know. But we've, we've already been talking a little bit about how there's, I don't know, maybe an undercurrent or maybe a message underneath the message. You, you hear the flurry of notes 
going on the surface, but then I guess what I'm asking, is there something that you want people to take away from a performance like this, other than, wow, that's a lot of notes. <laughs> yeah, ideally, I'd, I'd want them to feel the excitement of the imagery in, in the title, right? So the, the concerto is called Three World Winds, and this is the last movement. And I'm sorry, is it Three World Winds? Or three World. World. world, world. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. I used to wonder the same thing. When Alan was first speaking about it, I thought it was Three Whirlwinds, but no, Three World Winds. <laughs> so winds from different parts of the world as you might gather. And the last one's called Cyclone, of course. So it's it's got the vibe of a hurricane. It's crazy and it's, it's exciting. And I just would hope that people would be swept up in the energy of the whole piece with what I'm doing, what the band is doing. And it doesn't become so much about this. There's a lot of notes. I think given what's like a lot of pieces who, that are designed to create that kind of excitement because there's a lot of things happening. They're very dense and it creates a lot of this energy. And <clears throat> this piece is in that vibe. So yeah. hopefully people, mostly, I'm, I'm hopeful, they'll mostly come away with uh, just a sense of excitement and I want to jump up at the end. I, I think it, does, it brings that out. And the cadenza is wonderful. Oh, yeah, thanks. Aside from it mimicking my morning routine, my warm-up, <laughs> it's very exciting. It's pretty hardcore, man. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't I play from some of the same animals, but it's, it's essentially improvised, so I don't really know yeah. what I'm going to play. But I'm um, going to try to dig up. There's a YouTube that's like the, the studio version of it. Oh, yeah. I've, I've heard it on YouTube. I'm going to try to find it and put it on the show notes. Yeah. But I heard you did it in Norfolk a couple of weeks ago, and it was wonderful. It was great. Yeah, thanks, man. And, and you also did this thing where were you singing along with playing? Yeah, a little bit of a multiphonics wow. thing. Yeah, so doing a... Um, it's probably a little more commonly done on the low brass, and it's hard for me because um, on the trumpet with not only a fairly normal male vocal range, but also a very limited vocal <laughs> range compared to most people, I can only sing in a certain range to make it resonate with the whole one. But yeah, pretty common though on trombone and tuba, a lot of, a lot of players on those instruments have learned to use it because they can create a wide range between what they're singing and what they're playing. But I did meet a, a young lady in Tasmania, of all people, the, the other end of the world in Australia, who could sing, she could play a low G, C trumpet strong, and sing a high C, like the same kind of strength. And it was like an incredible multiphonics no effect. Yeah, so a low G and singing a high C? Yeah. It was amazing. Like a soprano? Wow. Yeah. So for people who have that kind of range. Um, Get to practicing, folks. Yeah. I top out, my falsetto tops out an octave and a half below that. So it's like I'm, you know, very limited, we'll say. But within my limitations, I try to use that technique a little bit every now and then and try to create a cool effect. Wow. I can't even imagine what that would sound like. A low G and then a vocal high C. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. And you've had someone like a. Michael of Gordon can probably sing almost that high in falsetto. I mean, he's got a huge range with his singing. Uh, so you, you run into some folks who, who have uh, incredible technique. I, one of the best things I've heard is a, a guy who lives right in town here named Brian Hooten, who's a trombone player. He's one of the best practitioners of multiphonics I've ever heard in my life. 
But what he can eat that's if truly unusual, if not unique, is he can do Tuvanese throat singing. You ever heard this? Tuvanese? Yeah. No, I've never heard of it. It's, I can't even try to emulate it, but basically yeah. you set up this bass note like, yeah. and you can get these overtones that you're singing with, and you hear like this high whistle tone that's melodic while there's this bass tone in it. It's really? an incredible oh, effect, yeah. Sure. He can do this while playing the bone. No so his multiphonics have multiphonics, basically. <laughs> it's one of the most amazing things I've ever heard. So compared to people like Wycliffe and, and Brian and, and a lot of other practitioners, my, my command of multiphonics is pretty primitive, really. I tried to do it, and I couldn't do anything. So well, you've got me beat. The key is to start, if you can sing like a major six, for example, like on whatever is a really good, solid, fat, resonant low note for you and sing a major six above and get it to resonate so it's in tune then you start to move a bit without moving the pitch once you get a little bit independence between uh, what you're playing what you're singing it's pretty easy if i can do it and, and most probably anyone listening can probably do this better than i could if they yeah. wanted to, if they want to shed and so yeah just put a little work in yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you had you like damaged your vocal cords at some point I don't know. I think I learned how to speak incorrectly. It wasn't like, obviously, my voice is not quite as messed up as Miles Davis's was in his later life, where the story about him having the surgery when he wasn't supposed to speak and then he started yelling expletives at someone at some point, he couldn't help himself, and the damage was done, and he sounded like this for the rest of his life. And in my case, nothing that dramatic. I just seemed to learn to speak incorrectly by the time I was a teenager it it got like this it just got pretty bad thankfully you didn't learn to play incorrect actually now that I recall you did learn to play incorrect I was listening to that podcast and I remember Danny Danny Edelbrock listened to you play a double G and as you as you told the story the look on his face was like oh goodness oh yeah I never (laughs) wanted to hear that again and it was terrible. Uh, I was, you, I could, I had managed to do with every muscle in my forearms and biceps. <laughs> and you can imagine what that sounded like. And so it was, yeah, don't ever do that again. And, and you've got to release the death grip on the horn and develop flexibility. Yeah, sure. And that's, that was a very much winning strategy for me. It completely transformed my playing. Learn, learn, so, you had to learn how to play correctly. Yeah, I had to learn. It's like with anything we do, the question of efficiency is super important. Right? Probably for trumpet players as much as anything because we're dealing with um, such a small set of muscles that are yes. pretty delicate and it's very easy to do damage. Ideally, they're doing as little work as possible to play. And it's, I think trumpet players sometimes get this idea that they're using, they're employing strength to play. But it's not a great analogy I think there may be strength like a dancer as opposed to a weightlifter a powerlifter or something where it's as much about flexibility and efficiency of movement as it is and that that proved to be very important for me in terms of surviving as a trumpet player so how many so, days out of the year do you spend on the road traveling here and there it's varied quite a bit due to the averages because of everything was shut down completely of course during the pandemic before that I would say I was traveling anywhere from four to six months a year, yeah, which was a lot while holding down the full-time job as a professor. And most of the trips during the semester, of course, would be pretty short. It's rare that I'd be gone more than a week, more often 
three or four days at a time and in and out. And, uh, it's not quite back to that, but it's we're getting back to that thing. The irony is that in 2019, I was like, man, I'd like to slow down a little bit. And so, wow, did I get more than I bargained yeah. for? Yeah. You know, by the end of 2020, it was like, hey, can I play any gig for anyone? Can any- I pay you to pay a gig to play gig? <laughs> For me to play a game. So it was it was a desperately missing that connection between other musicians and audiences and the stuff that we we take it for granted, but it really is a it's a sacred thing for us as musicians. It is. And, and that became really driven home for us. And I've heard that so many times interviewing people. Because yeah. I interviewed people during the pandemic and then like right after <clears throat> coming out of it 20, 2020 and 21, 22. And they there's so many people who very similar sentiment. I was burned out. I was just running all, I was running ragged. And then all of a sudden I had nothing and it made me appreciate what I had. So they're back at it. Maybe they're doing it maybe a little bit more wisely so that they're not on a track path to burnout. Yeah. But when when something is taken away, then you realize I really miss this. Yeah. That's Jordan Mitchell, right? Don't always seem to go that you you don't know what you got till it's gone. Yeah. That's um true words are never said. And so now I keep trying to strike a balance. Life is complex for all of us, of course, and we all have different sort of particular needs that we might have, like in, in my case, including an aging parent and and all got wife and dogs and a house to take care of and uh, full-time job in university. Those jobs, are, they're nine-month contracts by and large, the full-time job. Yeah. So during the semester, it's like full-on, and it's looking out for the well-being of the students while making sure you keep your own shops together and ready for own performances. So it's a lot. There are a lot of people doing it, and, and again, it's all slightly different for everyone. But I think that that idea of a striking a balance state. At, day at a time is the big challenge. Our priorities yeah. change as we get older, don't they? They sure do. Yeah. yeah. Like when I was 25 and 30, <clears throat> trumpet is all I cared about. Yeah. All I cared about. Nothing. Everything revolved around my next practice session. Now it's, oh, I miss a day. Yeah. I, I have a wife and I, I have a son to take care of. Yeah, exactly. There's, yeah. I, there's just, I have bigger fish to fry. Plus I've been playing for 20 years. Yeah. So yeah. I, I can miss a day and it's not going to hurt me. Exactly. Your goals shift too. And for me, it's less about maintaining, at this stage of my career, it's less about maintaining fundamentals. And a lot of it now has been a reconnection to improvisation. I've been working as a jazz musician straight through for the last few decades. But over COVID, when I could just practice whatever I wanted to, because I nothing to actually prepare for. I found myself digging deeper and deeper into the improv side, almost by instinct. And it's not really, so Mitchell, it, not even really since I was getting ready to tour with Joe Henderson. When I got that call, I was almost in a panic about it because it came, it was very unexpected. And the shedding was super hardcore. And over COVID, once again, I was at that level of energy working on that. So that's, I've been motivated mostly about excitement with the stuff I can learn and expand upon as opposed to, oh God, I got to keep my chops yeah, working. Yeah. But there are still some days where it's, <laughs> you get home short. and it's, man, I got to 
just yeah. chill and hang Life out. Life is short. Yeah. Choose your battles. Yeah, totally. Anyhow, we've had yeah, a, we had a very short window of time to talk. Yeah. Uh, today, because we both have a gig to get ready for. But I'm, I'm glad we were able to hook up again and yeah, let's man, not wait too. seven years till the next yes. one. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Let's, uh, let's hook up before then. Absolutely. Right. Thanks. Thanks James. everybody for listening. Is it rexrichardson.com? Dot net. Rexrichardson.net. And what are yeah. people going to find there other than just a website with some information? Anything to well, find there? Well, there'll be some information on, on tours okay. and uh, some some music, some videos, <laughs> and a way to contact me. Um, and you like hearing from people, don't you? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny, though, I often get emails meant for Rex Richardson, the new mayor of Long Beach. I don't know if you oh, heard about that, Rex. No. We've been following each other on Twitter for a long time. I was like, Rex, if you become president someday, you're going to ruin my life. You realize that. And he's steadily climbing. And so I often get messages, usually not happy messages. <laughs> climbing in the polls. Rex, the trumpet player, is watching. Yeah. Nervously. Nervously. Yeah. I'm like... But he's, so I, I have to keep 40 messages to him from angry constituents, <laughs> which is pretty amusing. And also some AI thing that we found, because I have a Google alert. It's like if, if a review comes out or something, um, I like to know about it. And so <clears throat> one popped up and basically it was an AI, almost like an AI Wikipedia style article, which was absurd. It was basically combining me and, and the other politicians in the mayor, yeah, wow. and making up all kinds of stuff. Uh, you're, you're, you are the mayor of the trumpet world. Yeah, I I was <laughs> like, I also had a, an, an extraordinary physique too, which I don't think neither one of us, I have. No, no offense, Mr. Mayor, I haven't seen you with your shirt off, but I <laughs> I think you're probably laid back about that stuff like that. But it's like all kinds of weird stuff. So I, I forwarded, so I was like, man, you got to see this. This is hilarious. And he, he was quite amused too. So yeah, we're... Um, we're intertwined in, in certain ways. So, and there is a RexRichardson.com, who I think is in real estate. Oh, okay. So you want to make sure it's net. .net. Unless then, you're looking for real estate, then yes, by and, all means, and knock if yourself you want, out. And, <laughs> and if you want to bypass the website email, just it's Rex at RexRichardson.net. So that, if you really want to stay loyal to the Rex Richardson brand, you buy real estate from <laughs> RexRichardson.com, move to Long Beach so you can be your mayor, and invite Rex, the trumpet player, for the performances <laughs> of his swearing in. Right? Now I know that's one town I probably can never move to without causing complete chaos. <laughs> Is it the mayor or the trumpet player who's coming up? Thanks, James. Yeah, Appreciate you, man. Pleasure, man. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. For more captivating episodes and exclusive content, Visit our official website at trumpetdynamics.com. You can dive deeper into the interviews, discover additional resources, and connect with your fellow trumpeters. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and even leave a rating and review. It really helps with the visibility of the show. Until we meet again, may your fingers be fluid, your breath unimpeded, and your chops ever fresh. Play hard, 